Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we're talking Wisconsin massage parlors, murders, orgies, quaaludes, co-eds, and the evil side of biochemistry. <laughs> this is the scandal that rocked Madison, Wisconsin in the 1980s and remains one of the most sensational murder trials in the state's history. Our source material this week is Winter of Frozen Dreams by Carl Harder. There are a lot of million-dollar words in this book, <laughs> words I've never seen before and probably will never see again, and a lot of very explicit, creative descriptions of male genitalia. Oh, my God. But overall, it was a very fun read. <laughs> yeah, it has it all. Pretentious words and dicks. It's so funny. Uh -huh. I feel like he was trying to be edgy in both directions. Sure, sure. Like, I'm a super edgy intellectual writer and I can say really gnarly different things for wieners. Are you going to quote them in the in this episode? No, I'm not. Okay. Because I don't think that they're very, uh, you know, as a reader, I just was like, oh, man, come on. <laughs> I did not need that. But it was a fun, it's a well-researched book, mm -hmm. and it was a really fun read. So Yeah, well, you have to do a lot of digging to figure out the right ways to des describe the same old thing over and over again. You, you know? know, honestly, as far as I'm concerned, there's no reason he needed to describe any of it. <laughs> it was, like, not critical to the story whatsoever. I mean, well, you said orgies, Muriel. Yeah, you know, but it's like, what, the part that orgies play in the uh -huh. narrative actually has a, a place but like uh -huh. describing what's going on it's not like <laughs> that didn't like that wasn't like a crazy if it was a crazy plot point I yeah, would be, right. oh absolutely that's and then, how the, they cracked the case that's how she fell out the window <laughs> like <laughs> whatever it is but yeah. i don't think it had anything to do with anything like relevant it okay. was just like oh damn i'm just <laughs> all right <laughs> Uh, anyway, that's the introduction. Beautiful. Let's <laughs> raise a toast to Ashley D's. Speaking of D, for signing up yeah. for our Patreon. Thank you so much, Ashley. If you're one of the people out in this cold, hard, beautiful, terrifying, inspiring world who enjoy this podcast and happen to be able to afford five bucks a month, we humbly invite you to subscribe to our Patreon page or through our Spotify feed for exclusive episodes. We do our very best to give you a big bang for your bucks. But if you'd rather just think of it as a contribution to the arts, you know what I mean? A little couple monthly dollar donation, whatever. That's cool with us too. You yeah, know, we're artists. It's cool. Hell yeah. And yeah. the direct support that comes from our audience is everything to us. It directly impacts our livelihood and this show. And we love you for it. All right. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, wieners, etc. <laughs> so if any listeners are like Nick and they don't like hearing about those kind of things, go listen to a different podcast. Usually this is the part where I warn that we might curse, but really Muriel's probably just going to say the word wiener a million times. I, I don't think know. it's more offensive than like, you know, the hardcore, you know. What? Dick. <laughs> I don't <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. Okay. Wiener makes you a lot more comfortable than me using other 
words. Yeah, no, it's the weirdest thing that you say wiener. It's just so bizarre. So anyways, uh, the warning is there's going to be lots of immature, uh, silly fourth grade or second grade (laughs) words. Who even uses that word? Anyways, uh, also, this is um, really intense subject matter. And Muriel and I tend to joke around when talking about the world, which means we're going to joke while talking about true crimes. So if you hate that, you think it's in bad taste, it's all good. Please turn us off. Yeah, and if you think Nick's a giant wiener, (laughs) go ahead and turn it off too. Okay, are you ready to hear this story, Nikki? Let's get started. One fateful night in 1974, Gerald Jerry Davies was standing frozen outside Jan's Health Spa in Madison, Wisconsin. On the side of the door where Jerry stood was the safe and predictable college town where he had quietly spent most of his life. On the other side of the door was the promise of a massage with a happy ending. (laughs) Okay, so he's not physically, literally frozen. He's just torn between two realities. It's a fork in the road. Right, and he didn't have a handful of teeth in his hand. Okay, that's a callback to an old episode. (laughs) Nick has a hard time with like metaphors. (laughs) Well, you're saying Wisconsin, and I know it gets cold out there. No, he wasn't literally frozen. (laughs) Sorry. All right. There there is actually a, a very robust red light district in Madison, Wisconsin in the 1970s. Cool. It wasn't legal, mm-hmm. but it was tolerated. For some reason, my personal perception of Madison, Wisconsin, I would never have guessed that. Right. But it was like a lot of massage parlors and just like this whole place you could go that was cool. right outside of uh, some government bu- buildings. Great. The handy capital of the country. <laughs> so... When Jan's Health Spa first opened in 1973 in the basement of a modest shopping mall in Madison, it initially confused innocent Wisconsinites. People came in thinking they'd get a trot on the treadmill and then a nice steam Mm -hmm. in the sauna, only to come face to face with kind of like a gnarly brothel mixed with cosmic bowling. The (laughs) front door opened into a dark, narrow lobby with black walls and then these blue lights that illuminated everything. And the ceiling was unfinished and lined with old wires and pipes hanging down. And girls in frilly lingerie and very thick perfume came in and out of the room, pulling clients while men lined the walls, drank cheap booze out of disposable cups, and waited. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the bread and butter of Jan's Health Spa was 35-minute, quote, topless massages, which were basically sponge baths on an old bed uh, for $50 (laughs) with optional add-ons. Okay. And they were so popular, there was a line out the door on weekends. It was a very popular service. I can imagine why. (laughs) After its debut, Jan's became one of the most Famous massage parlors in Madison where people could also go to pick up things like quaaludes and cocaine and the occasional gun. Okay. It took Jerry Davies three days and six beers to get up the courage to go inside. Jerry Davies grew up 45 miles west of Madison in Spring Green, Wisconsin, with his mother and three siblings. His dad had left the family when Jerry was just a little kid. So... The family was very broke. 
The family home was built from cinder blocks and cheap wood. There were a series of dark, tiny rooms inside. The windowsills sagged and had to be covered in plastic to keep the cold out of the gaps. Mm -hmm. There were holes in the broken floorboards. That's basically where he grew up. They didn't have an indoor bathroom until Jerry was three years old. Jerry's siblings grew up and moved away, but Jerry, the baby of the family, stayed really close to home and his mother. So even though he moved to Madison to work as a shipping clerk at the University of Wisconsin back in 1968, he came home to Spring Green every single weekend. So on Fridays, he'd go pick up his mom and take her to a fish fry. Saturdays, he would always go to the local high school to watch a basketball game. He had no friends, really no social circle. He basically worked, went home, and then on the weekends would go visit his mother. Mm -hmm. In 1974, Jerry Davies was in his late 20s and still a virgin. He had his very first two sexual encounters at Jan's health spa. And then the third visit, he met Barbara Hoffman. So Barbara Hoffman started out an academic heavyweight. According to her school records, by the time she graduated from high school in 1970, she was a member of the National Honor Society. She was a national merit finalist. She was fluent in Greek, German, and English. She played the French horn, and she had apparently tested an IQ of 145, which is like very extremely gifted. Great. Okay. Barbara got a full-ride scholarship to Butler University, where she made the dean's list before transferring to the University of Illinois and then finally to the University of Wisconsin. There in Madison, Wisconsin, she settled in and started her degree in biochemistry. She was a straight-A student for two years. Her work was brilliant enough to land her a summer position at the University of Utah researching protein synthesis. And then after that summer, she decided to make a hard pivot. Okay. <laughs> November 15th, 1974, she dropped out uh -huh. just 12 credits short of her biochemistry degree. And at the time, Barbara had traded biochemistry for the title of Queen of Massage Parlors. And she totally had her own thing going on. As much as she dominated in biochemistry at the University of Wisconsin, yeah. she totally dominated the massage parlor scene. And if you have any questions, like, there was no um, real, like, reason. Meaning that, like, she, her parents had money. She was fine. She was doing really well in school. There was no psychotic break, exactly. She's never really talked about it. Uh-huh. And she, after this whole thing went down, she never talked about it again. Yeah. But she, there's no like, oh, she had to do it because of X. There's no crazy yeah. boyfriend or whatever. And when you're saying massage parlors, you're actually saying like sex houses. I'm saying the thing I described earlier. Okay, good. I'm okay. just trying. And she's, so she owns Jan's Health Spa? Oh my God. You're, no, she just works there. Oh, she just works there. I thought you said she was the queen of them, like she owned a bunch of them. No, she just started working at these massage parlors. I feel like uh -huh. you weren't listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, I'll answer these questions. Maybe that was confusing, but I don't think so. Anyway, as the queen of massage parlors, she kind of uh -huh. had her whole other thing going on. She had this long 
dark hair. She didn't wear any makeup. Like, mm-hmm. the girls were really done up. Sure. So she wore no makeup. She didn't really wear lingerie. She wore natural scents, like, instead of, like, fruity perfume she wore like sandalwood (laughs) (laughs) and she had these big Uh huge 1970s style tortoise shell shell glasses so very bookish looking okay uh her vibe was quiet you know intelligent shy she would hang out sometime and just like read books in the lobby and she was insanely popular Uh like clients would wait sometimes for hours at Jan's just to see her. She was the girl. Damn, man. She must have been either real freaky and very talented or just the kind of person that these men wanted to spend their time with, felt more comfortable with. I mean, I think, I don't think anybody really knows. I feel like people who worked at Jan's had men who owned and ran Jan's had Mm -hmm. their own idea and that was skewing more toward the freaky, like you know, talented side, uh-huh. but I don't trust their narrative. I think sometimes <laughs> they sound like total jerks. So yeah. who knows? Whatever it was, she was like very enthusiastic and very captivating. Just made a lot of money also. Yeah. So that could just be the obvious thing. She's like, yeah, biochemistry, this is weak. It's boring and it doesn't pay very well. <laughs> yeah. Well, she made a lot of money. Uh-huh. At Jan's, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all around. She worked yeah. at different massage parlors. So after his first encounter with Barbara Hoffman, Jerry Davies started going to Jan's once a month to request her. Jerry was in love jail big time and eventually started booking time with her just to chat and talk. Of course, right. Right. And sunshine and rainbows, Barbara agreed to start dating him outside of the club. Oh, no. Barb was the first person Jerry had ever dated or even kissed. As for Barbara, she eventually left the parlors in 1976 and got a job processing medical claims. Over the years, she attempted to get back into school. She re-enrolled at the University of Wisconsin in April 1975, dropped out, re-enrolled the next fall, dropped out again, and then again in the spring and fall of 1976. But she ended up never finishing her degree. In 1977... She did start on a different track. She started auditing abnormal psychology classes, which she kind of dropped. She didn't take them for credits, but she she did that a few times. Yeah, that's a fun drop-in thing. Let, let me go hear about some people's weird brains, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I get it. She continued a relationship with Jerry, but there were some pretty strict rules. They lived separately. She didn't allow him more than two dates a week, and they didn't have sex. She said she was in therapy to kind of get past her sexual block. She didn't want to do that. But turns out she was definitely having a lot of sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like, was he paying her still? Was it like no, a they were like no, transaction? No, no. Not a sugar daddy situation. No. Uh, Barbara told family and that Jerry was just a friend, and Jerry referred mm-hmm. to Barbara as his fiance. I don't like where this is going. <laughs> I mean, I get that this is a murder podcast. I should have thought of that. Gross. I don't like where this is going at all. Okay. Well, you may not know where it's going. All right. So at 10.15 a.m. on Christmas morning, 1977, in Madison, Wisconsin, it was negative 22 degrees. So nostril freezing temps. Yeah, that's horrible. That's everything freezing temp, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Jerry Davies left his mom's house in Spring Green 
and went to the police. Eight inches of powdery snow blew around the frozen parking lot at the Madison police headquarters as Jerry forced himself up the steps to make a confession. Uh Uh-oh. He had buried a body two nights ago in a snowdrift near the Black Hawk Ski Club on Tomahawk Ridge. The vibe was kind of intense with this situation, right? It felt like a pretty wild thing to say on Christmas to a couple of cops in an empty police station. Like, maybe this guy is crazy. (laughs) Yeah, we're just trying to eat our cookies and get home to our family. Right, but they took Jerry's word for it. There was Uh something about how intense he was acting, right? And (laughs) I'm glad they they followed up. (laughs) And they allowed him to show them to the alleged dump site. Yeah. So they drove six miles west of Madison together in the snow and parked in the Black Hawk parking lot. Davies pointed them to a snowdrift near some maple trees just kind of near the parking lot. So police went over and they dug through the powdery snowdrift and quickly found a frozen arm. The body was just sitting in a shallow hole in the snow. It was the frozen body of a naked, white, middle-aged man. So the man's head was severely beaten to the point it was black and Mm. covered in old blood Mm. and then his genitals had also been totally beaten black and blue they were swollen to about twice their normal size and misshapen how do they know maybe he's just packing heat how do they know i think that it looked very mutilated and you're not going to quote how he described this in the book (laughs) muriel at the sight of the body, you're not having very much compassion. You're at the right, sight of right, the body, right. I should be. You're right. You're right. At the sight of the body, Jerry Davies puked into the snow. Ooh. So back at the police station, Davies was a mess. He was shaking, crying, continuing to vomit into garbage cans. At this point, he was 31 years old balding with dark, curly, shaggy hair and ill-fitting wired rim glasses that kept sliding down the bridge of his sizable nose. He hadn't shaved. He'd been sleeping in his clothes for at least a couple of days. And he was all over the place, so not sure really what his plan was. Jerry was adamant that he had no idea who the man was. Mm -hmm. And at first, he refused to tell police who else had been involved, if anyone. But eventually he cracked and said he had been helping his fiance Barbara Hoffman, who was being framed. Uh Uh-huh. You're right. I did not have enough compassion. This is horrible. You're right. It's so bad. R.I.P. whoever this this mystery man is. That's so sad. And that's horrible. You're right. I didn't have enough compassion. I feel bad. (laughs) It's okay. Is it? I feel like it's not that okay. But now I but now I'm making too big of a deal of it, which just doesn't fix anything. Okay. I'm gonna let you work that out on your own. Sounds sounds about right. (laughs) According to Jerry Davies, on December twenty third, he'd driven Barbara to work just like he did every morning in his Chevy Caprice. Barb lived in a small block of apartments above a dentist office in Manhattan. Most of her neighbors were college students. So that morning, Barbara, he said, was irritated and short with him and really briskly was saying she has no interest in spending any part of Christmas together. (laughs) It's pretty brutal. They had become 
engaged earlier in the year, in the spring, but Barbara had postponed the wedding. And now she seemed like she was pulling away. She was seeing Jerry less and less, except for these car rides to and from work because Barbara didn't have a car. Yeah, she's (laughs) getting rides and saying, I don't want to spend Christmas with you. (laughs) So Jerry was really stoked when Barbara called that night later to see if he was free for a date. So he wolfed down his TV dinner. He picked Barbara up, took her back to his place. They listened to music. It's the 70s. They vibed out. They drank wine. Hell yeah. And then around 1030, they went back to Barbara's house Uh to have a nightcap. They were having like OJ and and vodka on the couch watching Johnny Carson. And there they eventually just fell asleep on the couch. Barbara, he said, woke him up around 2.30 a.m. on Christmas Eve morning and she had a problem. Jerry said that Barbara told him the day before she had come home to a naked dead man in her apartment. She said she had managed to pull him down the steps of her apartment three floors and dump his body behind a dumpster, but she needed help, someone with a car to drive the body further away. So she's just dropping this bomb all after hanging out for hella long? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is what he says she does. Yes. Okay. So Jerry, probably being a normal person, was like, oh my God, we have to call the police. But Barbara was terrified. She says, you can't tell anyone because she was pretty sure she was possibly being framed by some shady guys who ran Jan's health spa. Like maybe her bosses were mad. She had left the parlor scene and wanted revenge or some way to blackmail her into coming back. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, she said the body was, quote, too close. Davies finally agreed Around 4 a.m., he pulled his car into the alley behind the apartment. There behind the dumpster was a frozen corpse wrapped in a white sheet. So the two of them are just like back behind this alley trying to wrestle this rock-solid frozen body into the car. So they managed to fit the corpse in with its head in Barbara's lap in the back seat and then the legs of the corpse stuck through between the seats with the toes poking the dashboard. And then they drove up to the Blackhawk Ski Club parking lot and picked a snowdrift. The ground obviously is completely frozen. There's no other way to bury him. So they were just going to toss him into the snow and hope for the best. Okay. When Jerry pulled the body out, the bedsheet slipped, exposing these mutilated genitals for the first time, which Barbara sort of snatched at the sheet, quickly covered up. Uh-oh. They dumped the body in a snowdrift, covered it with their hands, and then Barbara put the sheets in a garbage bag. Jerry slowly pulled away in his car while Barbara followed behind, brushing away their tracks with a pine tree branch. They drove back to Barbara's apartment where she gave Jerry cornstarch and spot remover to wipe down his car and clean his clothes. Does that work? Cornstarch? I know. I thought that was odd, but that is what she did. I mean, this is before DNA testing, so I think it just you just want to make sure, like, spots (laughs) out of there. Yeah, get some some cornstarch on there. So Jerry did what he was told and then drove off to spend Christmas Eve at his mom's house. What is going on? Hold on, time out. That's all the things that Jerry said happens, or that is what happened. That's his testimony to the police. That's what he's telling the police. Yeah. 
So Barbara's an evil scientist at this point. <laughs> She's okay. an evil scientist. <laughs> That's what we're getting at now. She likes toying with people's emotions, studying psychology. She knows biochemistry. She's at least getting rid of bodies, if not also murdering people. All right. So Barbara was in Illinois with her parents for Christmas. So she was out of her apartment when police got a warrant to search. Apparently... No one thought they were going to get called in on Christmas Eve. So there is this funny part of the book where the police said a few investigators showed up Christmas hammered from day drinking. <laughs> so one of the guys had to like lie on the couch the entire time. <laughs> That's awesome. Barb's third floor apartment was really, really hot and steamy. It was like 80 degrees, even though she wasn't there. And it was filled with exotic house plants and all the fans were running the bathroom fan the kitchen fan mm -hmm. and then also the, just the fan for the air conditioning unit over two days the police search yielded a collection of weed quaaludes dildos crotchless panties uh, a shoebox of dirty photos starring barbara hoffman herself textbooks on microbiology clinical studies on psychosexual behavior, uh, books on the sexual revolution of the 60s and then different sexual positions, and books on poisons, autopsies, and forensics. Mm -hmm. And finally, a folder with a bunch of documents belonging to a woman named Linda Miller, including a P.O. box key, library card, and banking records. Oh, is that her real name? Linda Miller. I was like, there's no way this lady's a genius. All the perfect attendance and all that kind of stuff. You know, big teacher's pet. Yeah, right. You are like so into this. this time. You're pitching all kinds of crazy stuff. This is so funny. I wasn't expecting that. Um, I'm just saying, no one's actually a good student, you know? Like, what? if you get a 4.0, then you're She fake. was a good student. That part's not fake. Okay. I, although I like you having theories. So I, I'm going to stop telling you if you're right or wrong. <laughs> okay. Because it makes this really fun. All right. What they didn't find was any sign of friends or family. No photographs or personal letters, mm -hmm. cards, yearbook, yearbooks, whatever. Right. As well as they didn't find any evidence whatsoever of a murder. There was no evidence that Burge ever entered the apartment, no physical evidence, blood, hair, clothes, nothing. Okay. So she says she found a naked man in her apartment. There are no clothes in that apartment. And also no evidence that the naked man was ever in there. Yeah. So no. Okay. Nothing. Yeah. Police talked to Barbara's neighbors. They described her as shy and quiet, but not particularly subtle about what she was up to. She didn't allow shoes inside her apartment, so it was really easy to see if she had a dude over, and uh -huh. there were always dude shoes outside the door. <laughs> <laughs> and if it wasn't shoes, uh -huh. it was knocking at all hours, men sitting in the hallway smoking and waiting. Mm. And one time a neighbor found an older man just like sleeping against the wall, waiting for Barbara to come home. Uh. After Barbara was made aware of Jerry's instantly folding and confessing, yeah. she reached out to a former client from her spa days, Al Mackey. 
He was a spiraling, divorced alcoholic with a failing legal practice. And Mackie may have been a tax and probate lawyer, but he was the only lawyer that Barbara knew. So they met up at a diner the day after Christmas to try to discuss her options and come up with a plan. She wasn't under arrest yet, but the DA had contacted her and was requesting an interview. Mackie thought, oh, go do the interview, man. That can't hurt. Sounds good. Let's do this thing. <laughs> but Just the, tell him everything that happened to you. At the last minute, he decided to like take her and run his plan by the guy that he shared his law offices with who happened to be an actual criminal defense lawyer. Uh-huh. And that guy was like, dude, don't do that. <laughs> Come on, man. That's such a bad idea. In no way should Barbara cooperate or make any voluntary statements. You know, and after that, Mackie uh-huh. focused on getting Barbara a lawyer more <laughs> suited to the task at hand. Okay, well, that's a, the decent guy thing to do. Yeah. On December 27th, police convinced Jerry Davies to help them set up a sting operation to get some information out of Barbara at the college club bar during happy hour. Davies was way too high strung to wear a wire. He was literally shaking at the thought of doing that. Mm -hmm. So investigators just stationed two undercover detectives in a nearby booth to eavesdrop and just hope for the best. Everyone was worried, obviously, that Barbara might kill Jerry. So under no circumstances was Jerry supposed to leave with Barbara or go inside her apartment. Jerry was like, this is so ridiculous. I told you she was framed. Uh She's a gentle lady. You're being terrible. Well, the sting went just about as bad as it could have gone. (laughs) Barbara showed up. There were too many screaming frat boys and loud jukebox music for the detectives to hear anything. And then Jerry Davies immediately left with Barbara to go to her apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jerry's. So they're trying to scramble to follow him. He's not following directions. And then Jerry, at the very last minute, decided not to go inside Barbara's apartment, even though Barbara was sitting there begging him to go inside. When detectives caught up with Jerry, the only thing he would tell them was that, hey, guys, the engagement is back on. (laughs) And that Barbara told them that they needed to stick together. Okay. On New Year's Day, 1978, Jerry drove to his mother's to watch football and eat dinner. He came home to a letter from Barbara in his mailbox reminding him that they needed to stick together and asking him for a ride to work in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, investigators were uncovering the identity of the naked man in the snowdrift. The conclusion of the initial autopsy was death by blunt force trauma to the head. Mm-hmm. The victim was about five foot nine, 160 pounds, and in his 50s, the victim's genitals were beaten post mortem in what appeared to be a frenzied act of overkill. Some and freaking evil scientists, freaking pa- Dr. Frankenstein style. Yeah, right. And he had been killed about an hour eating after eating a large meal of ham, cheese, and three bean salad. Well, that sounds pretty good. It was a good last meal. R.I.P. this guy, you know. When Harry Burge didn't show up for Christmas dinner, his sister and only living relative reported him missing to police. Within a few days, investigators linked this missing persons report to their Christmas John Doe, and the mm-hmm. body was positively identified. Harold Burge grew up on a a farm in Wisconsin, very Norwegian, very Lutheran, 
Um, the farm wasn't profitable, but it was enough for the family to survive on for decades. His only sibling, his sister, married and moved away, but Harry never left, just like Jerry. When Harry was 41 years old, the family went bankrupt and lost the farm, which was a big heartbreak for everyone. His parents retired and Harry got a job at the Uniroyal Tire Plant and the three of them moved into a house together in Stoughton, Wisconsin. Harry's dad died just a year later and then four years after that, his mom died of a heart attack. So at 46, Harry was completely alone for the very first time. Mm. His sister believed that Harry was celibate. She had never met a girlfriend and he never talked about dating. She just knew he bowled once a week. He liked to garden and then drive into Madison to watch movies and had an elaborate model train set up in his basement, something that took up the entire basement. His sister came by once a week to clean his house and do his laundry. Harry didn't drink or smoke and he didn't even swear, but he did like a good massage parlor. Uh, So investigators found his banking information showing he spent hundreds of dollars in places like Jan's health spa, mostly on Sundays and holidays. And that's where he met Barbara Hoffman. Mm -hmm. Harry and Barbara met one winter in 1975 at Jan's after his request to be handcuffed and beaten with an extension cord was denied by one of the girls. So Barbara took over his session and then he became a regular of hers. A year and a half later, in August 1977, Harry started acting like he had a girlfriend, a younger woman, uh, a student at the University of Wisconsin. He was really shy about it, though, and he wouldn't give any other details he started acting like that to who his sister okay in october 1977 harry burge changed the beneficiary of his will from his deceased mother to a woman named linda miller okay harry told his lawyer he wanted his fiance linda miller to receive his life insurance policy payouts and his house in the event of his death and then two months later harry burge was dead oh R.I.P. Right around the time investigators were learning about Harry's new will, Jerry Davies busted into their offices once again to try and convince police that Barbara was totally innocent. And then during this particular tirade, Jerry did accidentally reveal that Linda Miller was Barbara's alias. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was like, oh, yeah, 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 that's that's her alias. <laughs> that's her way of getting a fresh start after a massage parlor days. Like, he's giving them, like, right. all this information. Oh, yeah. And that's why police found that packet of Linda Miller's documents, her bank accounts, social security number in Barbara's apartment. Linda Miller was Barbara Hoffman, and now she stood to inherit Harry's house and $35,000 in insurance policies. Okay, so the investigation goes on, and things get a little worse for megamind Barbara Hoffman. (laughs) On January 10th, an insurance agent, Pat O'Donohue, came forward with information after seeing Barbara's name splashed all over the papers in connection with the death of Harry Birch. Uh So he came in. This is it was a little hard for him. He came in because he had done a little bit of super shady, messy insurance stuff with Jerry Davies and Barbara Hoffman back in 1976 before anything with Harry Burge even went down. Uh-huh. But he was like, I 
think maybe I should say something. Uh-huh. So O'Donohue said he had received this typed request from Jerry Davies in November 1976 for $3 million life insurance policy. And Jerry came in to discuss it with his fiance, Barbara Hoffman. He said Barbara ran the show and said, even though on paper, Jerry made like under $10,000 a year, he had a silent interest in four massage parlors and brought in a lot of cash under the table. Which was fake. Well, you know, who knows, right? Uh huh. He wanted to get the policy to help in some complicated tax scheme scheme that seemed completely concocted by Barbara. Uh I'm not going to get super into it, but I think the idea is the insurance policy was under his name Mm -hmm. with the beneficiary of the policy being his estate. Uh And so it was a way to start like building the worth of his estate. And that would help with taxes later on. Okay. That's kind of how I understand. Okay. And I'm just throwing in this thing about they're probably inflating what he's actually worth. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. That's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. O'Donohue said, yeah, I'll I'll give it a shot, right? But he wasn't sure he could find the type of policy they wanted for someone with such a small income on the books. But here's the thing. O'Donohue was highly motivated because his commission on the sale was percentage-based. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where the shadiness comes in. He looked at it and thought, this seems pretty right. shady, but I'm going to get a ton of money from yeah, it. Yeah, so. setting up a $10 million life insurance policy is worth way more than setting up a thousand dollar life insurance policy exactly yeah. so even though he saw red flags all over the place he saw green money signs he did O'Donohue put on his rose colored glasses <laughs> he couldn't see those flags <laughs> and then rolled up his sleeves and went to town did you write that that's a good line yeah i did write that. yeah rose colored glasses <laughs> don't don't help you not see the red flags uh actually I just improvised that. I didn't actually write it. Oh, damn. That was pretty good. I'm brilliant. You Uh, are. (laughs) The policy for Jerry Davies was rejected by every insurance company O'Donohue contacted. But after some serious (laughs) arm twisting, months of work, and recruiting the help of another insurance agent who, actually, this is a side story I'm not going to get too into, but he got this guy to help him, and the guy actually helped him secure a policy, but he stole O'Donohue's commission check and then fled to Mexico. (laughs) And then later tricked uh, Jerry and Barbara into giving him the other half of the commission check. Oh, so that guy's the real hero of this story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Scamming the scammers. He got it like... $12,000 $12,000 out of them. Uh, uh, I do really find myself interested in this world of insurance agents that are just like, I'll come up with a crazy thing and then pitch it to these different yeah. companies to see who will take it. It's kind yeah. of like being a screenwriter or something. Yeah, You're right. Like, oh, I have this crazy script. Let's yeah. see if I can go out there and sell it. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I just, it's so funny. Yeah. The the guy who fled to Mexico, uh-huh. they were, they had, they had, the premium for the year was about $13,000 and it was split into two payments, yeah. the annual premium. And so he stole the entire first uh, commission check. And then later he said, and send your second premium to me and I'll make sure it goes to the right person. And then he just stole it. Uh, yeah. Scamming the scammers. That's, um, you know. Very fun. Those are the saints. You know, that's who <laughs> directly into heaven for those people. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
So in February 1977, Jerry Davies was issued a life insurance policy valued at three quarters of a million dollars with an annual premium of $13,263. So that was $3,000 more than Jerry made on paper Mm -hmm. is what his premium was. Mm -hmm. Then three months later, the policy was amended to make Barbara Hoffman the sole beneficiary sure so with all this information investigators were pretty sure barbara was definitely gonna murder jerry davies jerry davies of course thought that idea was nuts but regardless davies was placed under 24-hour police protection against his wishes barbara hoffman was studying breast implant brochures in her apartment when she was arrested on January 18th, 1978, for the murder of Harry Burge. R.I.P. Barbara did retain a real criminal defense lawyer, one who had experience working with massage parlor clients, Rolex diamond and gold ring wearing Donald Eisenberg, her second choice for representation, but a far better option than her probate lawyer, (laughs) Al Mackey, who was still lurking in the shadows, facilitating things. Uh Uh-huh. Donald Eisenberg was huge, built like a linebacker with this big, loud, aggressive, booming voice and a flair for the dramatic. Barbara eventually was released on a $15,000 bond. And then two weeks after her release, the 24-hour police surveillance on Jerry Davies was canceled. Basically, it was too expensive and dumb. Davies was still totally in love with Barbara, dating her, driving her to and from work. He even brought her over to Spring Green to meet his mom and eat tuna casserole. So mm. even though he she had never even met his mom. No. <laughs> of course she hadn't. I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that. So even though they didn't really have a case with against Barbara without Jerry, and Jerry clearly had a target on his back. No one could do anything to protect him. He was just throwing himself in the, into the sea of love. They're just like, we can't do anything if he's just constantly being alone right. with Barbara <laughs> Yeah. Sir? <laughs> on Monday, oh, March no. 27th, oh, no. 1978, no. less than two weeks before Barbara Hoffman was supposed to be arraigned on murder charges, tell me. several people close to the case received handwritten letters postmarked for Saturday, March 25th with no return address. Some press, the DA, Barbara's lawyer, and law enforcement received identical hand-copied letters from Jerry Davis on unlined paper with the handwriting drifting up at odd angles across the page. The letters read, I want to write these letters because I want to set the record straight. I was scared. I was jealous. Barb is innocent and I wrecked her life. All those stories I told about Barb are false. She never had anything to do with the body at all. She never did. I went crazy. I was so scared and I didn't know what I was saying. Then I had to keep telling the same story or they would charge me with a crime. Now they did it to Barb instead and I don't know what to do anymore except tell the truth. I'm not crazy anymore and I'm not scared. I want to tell the truth. I'm not afraid of going to jail. Barb never had anything to do with the body at all. I swear it, and they can do what they want to me. 
that same day, a maintenance man entered Jerry Davies' apartment to no. deal with some complaints about a noisy bathroom fan. Oh, God. The apartment was neat and sparse, just ice cream and bologna in the fridge. Some grocery coupons were precisely laid out on the dining room table, and then a rent check for April was sitting nearby. Jerry was in the bathtub, naked, in a few inches of water, already fairly decomposed. No. Nearby was a set of towels, some slippers laid out, and an empty bottle of prescription Valium. The autopsy revealed Gerald Davies had died around 6 p.m. on Saturday, March 25th, so right after potentially sending out these letters, mm -hmm. and also right after eating a large meal of chili. There were traces of Valium in his system, but absolutely not enough for an overdose, and no other drugs were detected. His lungs were enlarged. They were filled with fluid, so they seemed to maybe show signs of drowning. There was no physical trauma at all to the body, no marks, no sign of struggle in the apartment. And in fact, none of his neighbors remembered anyone entering or leaving the apartment over the entire weekend. Yeah. The whole scene was weird, and obviously everyone was expecting Dark Barbara to murder Jerry, but the thing was, it just looked nothing like the Harry Burge murder, right? Which was marked by this really violent overkill. Yeah. Did you just call her Dark Barbara? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty clearly, Barbara had killed jerry davies uh, overall the most reasonable explanation just based on evidence and the leading theory was that jerry died of an accidental drowning or potentially a suicide using some sort of undetectable poison or drug mm -hmm. some interpreted his letters as a as a type of suicide note so that was what people were saying especially barbara's defense team mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at her april 7th arraignment Barbara pled not guilty in the murder of Harry Burge. And then the very next day, a toxicologist in Madison was smelling bitter almonds. The toxicology team had been examining Davy's organs since the 28th looking for poisons. But after meticulously testing and retesting, they just came up with nothing. The only consistent thing about Jerry's tissue samples was the faint smell of burnt Almonds. It was in the chili because you got beans and chili plus Harry R.I.P. ate that three bean chili for dinner. She's putting something in the beans. She's a biochemist and she's poisoning the beans. <laughs> Dark Barbara strikes again, handing out hand jobs and poison beans. Just after. <laughs> With a little tortoiseshell glasses on and a book in hand yeah right and just after barbara's arraignment the toxicologist finally realized what he'd been smelling it's the telltale sign of cyanide poisoning uh -huh. jerry davies blood contained two times the lethal dose of potassium cyanide and on a hunch the toxicologist tested Harry Burge's old blood samples, mm -hmm. which contained 37 times the lethal amount of cyanide. Damn, kidney, cannellini, and some just some good old fashioned Stop. pinto beans in there. All three. It's, it's a deadly combo. And while 
Losing Davies had been devastating to the prosecution's case against Barbara. The whole now with the cyanide Mm -hmm. evidence, right? Like the whole thing was kind of shifting the whole case. And they also had a new star witness, the manager at Jan's health spa, William Garrett, who was willing to make a deal in exchange for some crucial information. William Garrett and Samuel Saro ran Jan's health spa together. Sam Saro was the older big boss, and then William Garrett was the violent drug-dealing bodybuilder who basically ran the place. Mm-hmm. After the success of Jan's health spa, the pair opened several other parlors and sex shops in Madison. And then in the summer of 1976, Sam Saro, high on life, tried to buy $72,000 worth of cocaine off of some guys who ended up being federal agents. <laughs> and by the way, just for the record, yeah. at the time, that was like $400,000 worth of cocaine yeah. in today's money. So yeah, that right. was like a lot of cocaine. Yeah, he was trying to scarface it up for sure. Sam Shero was obviously really freaked out about spending the next 15 years in prison. So his business partner, William Garrett, came to the rescue about a good old-fashioned 70s-styled coke-fueled orgy. In exchange for busting Sam Sarrow's sentence down to six months, William Garrett agreed to step into the role of star witness for the prosecution in Barbara Hoffman's murder trial. So here is his story. William Garrett said he had an ongoing hookup with the hot, weird, brainy Barbara Hoffman, the brilliant queen of massage parlors with a biochemistry degree. But it turned out she might not have completely been a mental giant. (laughs) Sometime. I love it when I'm right. In early 1977, William Garrett's roommate went to this Coke and Quaalude 70s style orgy party and he got there and Barbara was there hanging out doing her thing and she was cross faded on wine and Quaaludes which was something she was into and in the middle of this orgy she just like leans over to this guy and she's like hey man I'm about to be hella rich (laughs) and he's like what? And she just tells him this story. She's just uh-huh. super messed up. And she's like, okay, I I landed this dude. He's soft, inexperienced, the shipping clerk while I was working at, at Jan's. And I convinced him that I'd leave the parlor if he married me. And then she said she talked him into taking out this $750 life insurance policy. And then... She was going to use her biochemistry degree to grow the botulinum toxin in her apartment. So that's the thing that causes botulism. Gotcha. And then that spring, they were going to get married. And when they honeymooned in Mexico, he was going to tragically die of botulism, just a victim of food poisoning. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good idea as long as you don't tell a room full of people, right? (laughs) Well, she also didn't go through with it. Well, this is right when she was about to go through with it. Okay. So this is this is the the 1977 in the uh-huh. spring when she postponed the wedding. Gotcha. A couple of days later, the roommate told Garrett, "Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, you're right. She didn't go through with it." Yeah, Sorry. A, that's a pretty. I mean, that's like at least that's an idea you could do with a 
brilliant mind and like good degrees and everything, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? But she didn't go through with it, right? She's used regular old dumb cyanide. Well, yeah. So a couple days later, the roommate goes to William Garrett and he's like, man, <laughs> I got this wild orgy story for you, right? Uh. That science chick, Barbara, <laughs> was saying all kinds of wild stuff, right? So he tells him the story. And then Garrett was curious. You know, it seemed like such an out there, crazy scheme that Garrett really wanted to know if his roommate was tripping and made the whole thing up or if Barbara was really just out there getting trashed and broadcasting real legitimate murder plans. Mm -hmm. And if so, he wanted to warn her that the cat was out of the bag, right? Everybody knows. I know. This guy's <laughs> telling people your story, right? So Garrett went to her apartment to talk. The first time he went, Barbara denied everything. But then Garrett said he glanced up and he noticed a to-do list on a chalkboard no. on her fridge with marriage license and passport. They were both checked <laughs> off. And then the pinball wizard noticed him noticing and she kind of stepped over to block his view of the fridge. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> So the next time he hung out with Barb, pinball Garrett wizard. took another tactic. What'd mm -hmm. you say? Pinball wizard. <laughs> He told her, uh -huh. listen, I know you're lying. And also, this is a dumb murder scheme and you're for sure going to get caught. He was like, too many people know about it. Who knows how many from the orgy overheard? Right. So at this point, according to Garrett, Barbara finally admitted to the scheme. <laughs> she says, yeah, fine, fine. I plan to marry and murder a shipping clerk and collect this quarter of a million dollars. She said the way she came up with the scheme was that one of her regular tricks was an insurance exec executive who would take her sailing and exchange the ins and outs of insurance rules for sexy time. So she would go and like have sex with them and then just be like, and how does insurance work? <laughs> and then you kind of told her how to get these policies, right? Okay. And she used that information to come up with her plan for securing this large life insurance policy on Jerry Davies. Yeah, which only kind of worked. It seems like this guy was just like, yeah, I'll, I'm a genius when it comes to insurance. <laughs> come over. I'll I'll trade. You give me something I want, I'll give you to, give you what you need. You know? Yeah, man. And then, the, uh, okay, so then Curtis said that Barbara admitted to this whole other scam that she was running uh -huh. <laughs> also at the time, uh, blackmail. She said she ended the affair with the insurance guy by threatening to tell his wife about the affair unless he co-signed on a large loan for her. And then Barbara took the money, defaulted on the payments, and then the insurance guy was stuck with paying off the whole balance. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Garrett said he thought he had talked Barbara out of the whole murder thing until he realized Harry Burge's body had been found. Mm. Now, William Garrett didn't seem like the most trustworthy of storytellers, right? Like he had a big incentive to try to get his business partner like a plea deal. And also it's a little bit of hearsay. You know, he said, oh, my friend said this thing. Yeah. You know, she admitted this stuff to him. But later, but he wasn't actually at the origin. You know, it felt a little bit like, are they making this up, right? Yeah, well, they're all doing quaaludes and drinking wine and all this. I mean, it's not like, it's not like oh, yeah, she was she was very drunk and told me this thing. It's like, were you also incredibly high, yeah, right. Mr. International Cocaine Star? 
So all of that's true, but further investigation started to corroborate a lot of what William Garrett was saying. So mm-hmm. first off, there were records of Barbara defaulting on loans worth thousands of dollars that were co-signed by different prominent Madison community members, mm-hmm. all men with high profile jobs and a lot to lose. And then there was this damning timeline. So over time, investigators created this. I'm going to read it to you. Okay. Now, it's really incriminating, but I, and I, it's such a complicated story, but I would pay attention to like, you can tell the plan switched somewhere in here, right? In the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And, and police say that that indicates that maybe William Garrett did convince her to abandon the plan and go with something else. But it is a little wild, like what she actually did. So anyway, I'll read you this. So the entire thing happens in mostly in the year of 1977. Okay. In February 1977, Barbara ordered a crap load of laboratory equipment from Labs Medical Supplies in seven shipments, including potassium and sodium cyanide, and then the supplies to grow the toxin that causes botulism, all in the same month that Jerry Davies purchased a $750,000 life insurance policy. Then, like two months later in April, Barbara and Jerry obtained a wedding license. In spring 1977, somewhere in there, William Garrett allegedly told Barb her murder plan was stupid and she wouldn't get away with it. And then on April 22nd, Barb canceled her court date to marry Jerry Davies. April 28th, just a week later, Barbara applied for a library card under the name Linda Miller. Then May 10th, Jerry Davies' insurance policy changed to make Barbara Hoffman the sole beneficiary. Mid-May, this Linda Miller is approved for a P.O. box. (laughs) Back when a library card was enough. Yeah, exactly. It's like super trustworthy. July 2nd, Linda Miller established a bunch of bank accounts. And then in mid-October 1977, Harry Burge made Linda Miller the beneficiary of his life insurance policies and willed her the deed to his house. So then, December 22nd, 1977, Harry Burge is killed. And then in February 1978, just a couple months later, the three-quarter of a million dollar insurance policy on Jerry Davies lapsed. Now, I think what they found out later was that Barbara Hoffman's lawyers convinced her that this insurance policy on Jerry was a really, really bad look. Uh But for whatever reason, this big cash cow insurance policy, she stopped payment on the check and then just the, the policy went away. March 10th, 1978, Jerry Davies did change his pre-existing life insurance policies worth around $20,000 to make Barbara the beneficiary. And then two weeks later, on March 25th, 1978, Jerry Davies died of cyanide poisoning. Okay, so she doesn't sound very... She sounds tricky, but not... Uh, you know, she's not pulling any fancy magic strings here. She's it seems like she's not getting what she wants. Yeah, and you know what's interesting too is like the murder of Harry Burge really messed everything up for her. So who murdered him? Her? She beat him to death. 
Well, remember, he died of cyanide poisoning. And then beat him to make it look like it? What was up with all the beatings? And where did it happen if there's no blood anywhere? So literally nobody knows the answer to that today. Like, nobody knows the answer. Now, it's, but you did say he liked to get be as part of his sexual kink, right? Yeah. So. There's an element of that, but certainly not with, like, you know, a brick. Yeah. You know, that yeah. kills you. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it sounds like he was poisoned with cyanide and then maybe beaten. Because I knew that the. The genital stuff you said happened after he died. After he died. Yeah. So it wouldn't have even been something that she had done prior. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. as a part of a sex thing. It happened afterwards. And it sounds like if they know that, then the cyanide poisoning and the beating happened at the same time. Is there any possibility that Jerry did it? Nobody knows. These are just like what we, that, that's really what we know is that so far it's like the timeline and all this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Barbara Hoffman will find out. She never took the stand. She's yeah. never talked about it. And it sounds like she has a bunch of men that'll do whatever she wants. Who knows? All right, so November 16th, 1978, Barbara Hoffman and her showboating lawyer, Donald Eisenberg, came to court for her new preliminary hearing in the murder of Harry Burge, a hearing to consider Jerry Davies' death and all of this new cyanide evidence that they found against her. A recent Supreme Court ruling in Wisconsin allowed TV cameras into into the courtroom for the first time. So it was like a crazy, crazy circus. Wait, this wasn't the first time. It yeah. was just a new thing. This was the first like, trial? This was like, maybe it was a new thing. Uh-huh. I don't know if it was the first trial, but it was uh-huh. definitely the first big trial. It was like the biggest trial wow. of the century, right? Whoa. So... There was like reporters, television crews, like all of their cables because it wasn't, there's no wireless stuff. This is the 70s. Uh It's just like wires and crazy power sources. It just looks like the Matrix. Right. And then also so many spectators from everywhere all across the state. Half of Madison showed up and it wasn't even the trial. Like this is the preliminary hearing. This isn't even the trial yet. You know, like, Nine out of ten of them were like, she's not even that hot. Like, I don't even get it. What is even happening? So Eisenberg started off with this big britches claim. He walked into the courtroom up to the judge and he said he wanted a different judge. He had some reason for that, but I just thought this was so funny. So he declared... Uh at the preliminary (laughs) hearing that he would not recognize the jurisdiction of Judge Burns' court and would refuse to participate in anything that was happening. That does not seem like a very good (laughs) move. Then this devolved into Eisenberg and Judge Byrne like insulting each other and fighting Uh until the assistant DA and the lead prosecutor just stood up and made a motion to dismiss all charges against Barbara Hoffman. So the court is silent. All eyes are on the assistant DA. And Eisenberg's wheels are turning for a moment. And he just finally says, you know, yeah, sure. No objections here. Uh, Go ahead. So 
Judge Byrne dismissed the charges and Barbara Hoffman was free to go. What? The courtroom lost its mind. That's the craziest shit. Does the DA also in her little sex cult? Eisenberg squeezed Barbara and they were rushed away by reporters. The pair made it out of their courtroom with Eisenberg glad handing along the way, just happily accepting congratulations. He's super chuffed up. And just as they walk outside to Eisenberg's shiny white Jaguar, Barbara Hoffman was ambushed by Madison police and declared under arrest. She is charged with the double murder of Harry Burge and Jerry Davies. Okay, sure, sure. It was a trap! Of course, that's tight. <laughs> Under Wisconsin law, charges can be refiled if new evidence is discovered. Uh-huh. And since the cyanide poisoning was new evidence and then also tied the two murders together, prosecutors, prosecutors were able to group the charges and do this new thing. <laughs> that little DA is just in the corner with his little, like, uh... <laughs> yeah. Uh, pyramid finger scheme, just like <laughs> so. Eisenberg was roaring. He was so mad, and he yelled, "This is an illegal arrest!" And he swooped Barbara up and ran back inside to look for Judge Byrne to rescue him. Oh, now he wants the judge's help. <laughs> now he respects the judge's jurisdiction. So Byrne had already left, so he pulled Barbara over to a random courtroom, and then the co- the cops jumped in. They blocked the door, and Eisenberg acted kind of like that Will. Smith bit of like hold me back you know he's like hold me back but nobody's like he's not actually doing anything so he's like they both put up their fists and they were lunging at each other but not actually throwing any punches so the cops did the same thing uh-huh. until a bailiff finally grabbed Eisenberg and tried to defuse the situation but that didn't end the hallway standoff the brawl spilled into Judge Northrup's traffic court mid-session. Eisenberg pulled Barbara up to the front row to look over the new charges. So they were just having like a hushed conference in the front row. And everyone in the hallway with all of their cameras and wires and everything piled into this traffic court. <laughs> so Judge Northrup is there like banging his gavel and calling for order. Nobody cared. Yeah. So he finished the session in chaos and then... I don't know how this worked, but remarkably, he went straight into Barbara Hoffman's bail hearing. (laughs) (laughs) So they're all just there and they started and he set her bail at $20,000 cash, which enraged Eisenberg, who told Judge Northrup, let me say I'm very disappointed in this court and with you personally. (laughs) (laughs) I love this like affronted whatever powerhouse lawyer or his main move is just to say like your whole presence offends me. You're trash. Uh, so there's this long okay. series of like postponements and whatever, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever. But the trial was held in the summer of 1980. I can't believe the lawyer didn't get his ass beat by the cops too. I think it was just everybody was I think it's a lot of shock you know it was shock and awe he was like how he thought he had gotten away with it (laughs) scot free (laughs) so this is like the murder trial of the century in Madison Wisconsin Mm -hmm. this huge televised event and while the courtroom was totally full not one person showed up to support Barbara Hoffman Mm. Her parents came for one day to testify and they went straight home afterwards. Now, we pretty much understand the prosecution's position, right? Barb Barb was killing fellows for insurance money. 
the defense claimed that Barbara was the victim of an overly enthusiastic, rabid DA office, that they were desperately trying to piece together circumstantial evidence to pin the blame on Barbara. Are they? Is it also like, how are the massage parlors doing? Is the whole industry getting cracked down at this time? Was it like a big uproar about what's going on in these places? You know, they didn't really talk about that in the book. Mm-hmm. I think there, that there was a heyday. And then it got cleaned up. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I did some like Google searches and I found some like Madison newspapers that did retrospectives on what it used to look like mm-hmm. in this red light district and then what it looks like now cleaned up. So people are really proud of it not being a red light district anymore. Mm-hmm. But I don't know when that happened. Gotcha. They're all proud of their boring ass place now. <laughs> There's a Ben and Jerry's. Like, man, this place used to rock. It looks kind of cool. I'm sure. I think. I think. Madison I think Madison's awesome. Like, I'm not yeah. talking trash about Madison. I'm just saying. You know, it's like, oh, we have a Panera now. You're you just know? mad because it's not a red light district. I know. Anymore. That's exactly. Everyone should. <laughs> all right. Feel the so same way I'm not going to go over the whole trial. It, it was actually really fun and lots of fighting and and stuff like that. But in terms of highlights. The biggest drama came from Barbara Hoffman's parents who provided a surprise alibi. So both her mother and father took the stand to say, mm-hmm. hey, guys, I I don't know if you know this, but we had actually been visiting Barbara in Madison during all of the time she was accused of killing both men. Okay. <laughs> she was. They were like, we were sleeping in her living room, just like, you know, a couple feet away from the phone, both very light sleepers, and they had heard nothing. Barbara was with them the whole time on December 22nd when Harry Burge was killed and dragged to the dumpster. On December 23rd, when Harry's body was buried at the Black Hawk Ski Club. And then again, they were like, and we just happened to be spending the night on March 25th when Jerry Davies died in his bathtub. It's so mm. very coincidental, very strange they didn't come forward earlier, right? Yeah. I mean, that seems like a straight up lie. They said they didn't come forward for two whole years because they figured the police wouldn't believe them. Plus, they said they told Eisenberg, so they felt like that was totally enough. It was a very neat alibi that also didn't account for anything like the insurance and the cyanide, Mm -hmm. right? And they also kind of suspiciously used the same phrasing and words to describe spending the night at that house. They were just seemed like they had almost exactly the same oh, story. Oh, like they were coached with the same script. So in the closing arguments, after all this, it seemed pretty compelling, like they were just trying to help their daughter, and they made the testimony, and then they went straight home. They didn't stay for the rest of the trial. Mm-hmm. In the closing arguments, the prosecution had this bombshell moment where he was like, remember how they said they're light sleepers, nothing happened. And then he just held up this list of long distance phone calls that had been placed <laughs> during the time that they were said they're sleeping in the middle of the night. And so it was like this, it was huge. Like everyone was like, <gasps> yeah, know, it was God. great. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess you want to protect your daughter, but it's like, you're gonna be caught lying. I guess you just know that. And you think, I don't care. I'll, you know. Well, they didn't know about the they they weren't even there when that was revealed, so they didn't know it was like the last moment, in right? The trial. But I just mean in general, like they must know this isn't going to work. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. but you just was, make the deal with the devil and try to protect your daughter, and regardless of what she did, and 
Yeah. I mean, I, I get it, I suppose. Yeah, that's what the DA said. Yeah. So that was like the big thing. But there was, it, it was interesting. Like Eisenberg brought up a few very good points in his closing argument. Like Barbara weighed just a little over 100 pounds. So how was she able to move Harry Burge's body alone down three flights of stairs and then drag him all the way to a dumpster. That seemed really unreasonable. Especially in this apartment building where everyone's always like, oh yeah, I know what's going on in the hallway at all times. Yeah. Um, There was no evidence of foul play ever found in Barbara's apartment or any sign that Harry Burge had ever been there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, also, like we said, William Garrett had a lot of incentive to invent his orgy story and in a lot of ways it was just his word against barbara's you know he didn't have any evidence he just had this conversation that he said happened right he's like yeah i was in an orgy everyone's holes were plugged but my ears were open Stop. i heard it <laughs> you know Jesus Christ. so the trial <laughs> ended without any testimony from barbara hoffman herself so she never took the stand the jury returned their verdict after 14 hours of deliberation. So the fast turnaround typically signaled a, a, a not guilty verdict. So people saw how quickly the verdict came down and they kind of assumed that. Mm-hmm. So the prosecution team drafted their response of defeat for the press and Eisenberg went and stocked a party room at a nearby restaurant with champagne. Oh man, this guy just loves hoisting up that championship trophy just to have someone come and block the shot. It's a buzzer beater. So the speed of the verdict caught everyone by surprise. So very few people were around to hear it. The courtroom was quiet and empty for the first time when Barbara Hoffman was found not guilty in the death of Gerald Davies and guilty uh-huh. of murdering Harold Burge. Wow. So she was uh-huh. sentenced to life in prison. Wow. The DA declined to press charges against the Hoffmans for perjury. They had the same exact yeah. you know, feeling that you did. You know, They were just trying to protect their daughter. So they actually didn't catch any charges for that. After a threat of a civil suit, because Barbara was being a huge bee and keeping all this insurance money, Barbara relented and split the insurance money from Jerry Davies' insurance policy with his mother, Ruth. So she got a little bit out of that. But she still got to keep like a bunch of that money, which I think is ridiculous. Yeah. Because she wasn't convicted in his death. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Barbara Hoffman went to prison. She never spoke about the case again. She dropped... All her federal appeals, she withdrew herself from consideration for the parole board, and she just got super religious. She said she talks to Christ. And as far as I can tell, she's still currently an inmate at the Tayachita Correctional Institute for Women in Wisconsin. Now, there's an interesting theory about the murder that comes out in Winter of Frozen Dreams. Uh, Some of the folks on the prosecution team thought that Harry Burge may have died on accident. In fact, while they got a conviction on the Burge murder, Mm -hmm. they still were really not sure what the hell happened. There were all these strange inconsistencies. Like, why would she kill Burge in such an inconvenient place in her apartment? Why did she kill him 
just for this like $35,000 in insurance policies when she was set up to get $750,000 from Davies. Like that still could have worked. Mm -hmm. Why did she complicate her plan by killing Burge? Why was there so much overkill, right? He had 35 times the amount of cyanide needed to kill him, which, you know, a lot of the um, trial witnesses talked about teaching her in classes in her biochemistry degree Mm -hmm. specifically about cyanide so like she knew how much cyanide she needed to kill this person it wasn't like she didn't know how much she needed so 35 times was like way more than she knew she needed plus you have like the beating of his genitals post-mortem and like the violent beating of his head so one idea is that she had just had Harry Burge over as a private client and they were all good and then he accidentally put a teaspoon of cyanide into his coffee because potassium cyanide looks pretty much identical to crystal sugar and Barbara was keeping the cyanide in a little crystal bowl in a cupboard so it looked almost <laughs> like sugar that's what they found when really they, yeah so it was in her in her cupboard so the idea is she walked in, you know, as he's drinking this, he realized he's been poisoned and he starts to go crazy. So she beat him off with the frying pan. It doesn't account for the genitals, but it's a thought. Yeah. <laughs> That's the idea. But nobody knows. She never talked about it. The prosecution has no idea. You know, nobody knows really how all of this stuff went down or why. And, you know, really the deaths between. Burge and Davies, aside from the cyanide, they're very, very different. Like, there's some similarities. They were naked. Yeah. You know, and they were killed with cyanide. But then aside from that, there's so many differences. I don't know. I know. I'm just, now I'm just going into my, like, my crazy abnormal psychology class that I've never taken in my (laughs) life or studied on any level. But you just think, like, okay, you're this sort of high achieving intellectual scientist person who then you're like, actually I'm really just into quaaludes and like, you know, karma sutra or whatever. And I love preying on men who have never had sex before and I can manipulate them and you're getting off on that. And then you just think like, I want money. And then you're like, Oh, I can kill them and that'll get me money. And then I could see that all of that sort of spiraling and snowballing, but not actually concocting a code of conduct when it comes to actually doing the killing. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like you could probably be a killer without being like, I'm a killer and this is how I do it. (laughs) I don't know. Right. She was a freak. She liked to do all types of weird sex stuff. Maybe she was just getting started in her serial killing, you know? Yeah, she's Maybe she's experimenting. just see, experimenting, seeing what she likes, a little bit of that, giving it the old college try, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, do you think she did it? Yeah. Yeah. Although I do think that it's interesting to think about the connection to William Garrett and Sam Saro. Mm-hmm. You know, what they could have known or not known or who helped her move the body. You know, somebody probably had to help her move the body and apparently it wasn't Jerry. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of interesting things about the situation. You know, like it seems very, I think that's maybe the thing that stands out for me the most is like, there's just no way she could have taken the body all the way down by herself. And why would she be protecting someone? You know, Mm. 
it, it's it's interesting. I can't get also that scene out of my head of the the body being frozen stiff as a board. So it has to like her the head, frozen head is in her lap in the back seat, and then the feet and legs are just straightforward, like jamming on the radio station that they don't want to listen to. So they're just like driving through yeah. Wisconsin, with, like some horrible you know talk radio on in the middle of the night or something or yeah 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 maybe maybe what if it was like the church channel was on and they had you're listening to that (laughs) and you're just like you're like turn it off you're like you can't one foot has got this station chosen and the other foot has a volume all the way on i can't turn it off (laughs) you know you're just listening to that i feel like you're not having enough compassion right now (laughs) don't throw that at me don't throw that at me Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel, thank you for doing all the research, writing, hosting, and keeping me honest during this episode. (laughs) RIP to everyone who's passed and, you know, peace be with them, with their families, and with you, our listeners. Uh, I was the villain of this episode. (laughs) But I'm also the editor, engineer, and co-host. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Or you can hit up Spotify and get those exclusive episodes right there on your Spotify app if you go to the Muriel's Murders feed and click the links and all that kind of fun stuff. Plus, if you enjoyed this episode, it would be amazing for Muriel and I if you texted it to a loved one in your life who you think would enjoy it as well. Your support keeps us inspired and motivated. Other great ways to help the show include leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rating and following us on Spotify. Connecting with us on social media. And we love hearing from you. Our DMs are open. Slide right in. Plus, you can email us at any time. You can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode, or you can go to our website, murielsmurders.com. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram. Find him on Bandcamp. I've got a link to a playlist on Spotify of a bunch of music he's produced. We love Mario. That's it. Have a wonderful week, guys. Yeah, definitely take care. We'll see you soon. Bye.